everybody, this is Cameron here, just letting you know that this entire episode is about The Last of Us, so we're going to be talking about The Last of Us Part 1 and The Last of Us television show. Uh, there's spoilers all throughout, so if you're avoiding those, um, you might want to go learn about it somewhere else and then come back here. Go play the game and, and come back here. Uh, it's a really cool roundtable. I hope you enjoy it a lot. I'm going to save the plot of The Last of Us in a short summary form here in about five seconds. So if you don't want to hear the summary, you might want to turn it off right now. The Last of Us is about a smuggler named Joel who is tasked with taking a young girl named Ellie across the United States so that a group called the Fireflies can retro-engineer a cure for a zombie fungal plague from her immunity. A lot of episodes happen in the middle of that, and when they get to the end of their journey, it is revealed that Ellie will have to be killed in order for the cure to be made, and in response... Joel kills all those people who would do that and then kidnaps Ellie back to uh, the safety of quote unquote civilization. And, uh, you know, he basically lies to her at the end and says, hey, they couldn't do it. And she says, OK, so that's the, that's the gist of it. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in there. We're going to talk about a lot of those things in the middle. But that is the big, broad summary of what actually kind of occurs in the game and each episode uh, kind of coincides with the season and you meet a lot of characters along the way. We'll talk about some of those things in the episode, but I said I would do this in the episode. You'll hear me say I'm going to come back and do this. Here I am doing it. I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's really cool kind of format breaking for Game Study Study Buddies, but I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Let us know. Leave us five stars, of course, uh, wherever you are rating this. And uh, let us know on Twitter, twitter.com slash ranged touch uh, if you enjoyed this episode. And if you have a friend who might enjoy it, maybe send it to them or a family member or significant other or any other human being on the planet. Okay, thanks so much for listening to this little preamble, and I hope you like the episode. Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies or at least the parts of it that we've talked about? Question mark? This is a, a very special episode of the uh, of the show. We're breaking format a little bit. Michael's not even here. I, I uninvited him. He's not here. Uh, uh, I didn't uninvite him, but he does not care about what we're talking about today, which is The Last of Us. Uh, uh, noted uh, non uh, The Last of Us care, Michael Lutz. He, he's over there angelically looking over our shoulders. Uh, and I say our because this is a roundtable episode. Uh, we're thinking about doing some more of these at the end when you're done listening to it. Maybe you should give us some feedback. Let us know if you enjoyed this, what we could do in the future to improve it. Or uh, if we did it perfectly first time out, which uh, topics you'd like to hear about. But uh, I'm here with three other people and uh, I'll let them introduce themselves to you. So uh, let's go around the table a little bit. Let's get some introductions. Treyandria, do you want to start? Sure. I'm Treyandria Russworm, and I am actually newly appointed. I just, uh, this was a year where I was visiting at the University of Southern California, um, USC, and I just found out that my um, tenure and promotion to full professor was approved. So I guess I am now newly appointed uh, professor in the Interactive Media and Games Division at USC. Um, where I, my specialty is uh, 
game studies, but more broadly, media, African-American media studies, popular culture in that sense, where I've uh, written books about television and film in the 60s and 70s. And uh, but also mostly most important and most relevant to this episode, um, I also write about racing games, generally speaking. And I've written about uh, The Last of Us in uh, a collection called Gaming Representation. And I talk about uh, racial empathy and dystopias in that piece. Um, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much enough about me. And uh, how did you come to The Last of Us? Uh, you just grabbed it for the PS3 way back a decade ago. How did you get there? I did. I was, you know, I was interested in The Walking Dead. So I think I might have played The Walking Dead first. And um, I also wrote about the, the Walking Dead in that that chapter on The Last of Us. And so uh, but I was teaching a class for many years. I, I've taught a class called Dystopias. It's had various titles, but I would say for about 10 years, I've taught a class on dystopian games uh, and media. And so I think probably The Last of Us and The Walking Dead you know, came to my attention through that class where I always let the students pick the games that we play each each semester. And mm. so uh, and I have some rules of, like Bioshock and Portal. There are a few games that if, if I allow the students to pick them every year, we'd play them every year. But for variety's sake for myself, I usually encourage them to choose something something else <laughs> that um, that I haven't played a zillion times. And so I'm sure that The Last of Us and, and The Walking Dead, you know, I started thinking about those games in the context of that class and in the context of thinking about dystopias in general. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure I, I played that as a part of the class and then I started, you know, playing it on my own. And I would say I'm pretty up to date on The Last of Us franchise, I think. I mean, I've just finished the TV show and I played The Last of Us 2 as well. And I've spoken uh, kind of at length about The Last of Us 2, but but we'll, we'll kind of keep our comments uh narrowed to the last of us today yeah yeah feel free to whenever you got the hottest take possible about the last of us too, <laughs> feel free to, it doesn't get any better it, it doesn't get let's just say a spoiler alert is it doesn't get any better than last of us too. <laughs> uh, but yeah cool uh yeah and uh jesse hey i'm jesse ramirez born and raised in san jose california but i've been living and teaching in Germany and Switzerland for, it's hard to believe, 10 years now. Wow. Yeah. I'm generally interested in popular culture, and especially speculative culture. Uh, I wrote a book about apocalyptic science fiction. And while I was writing that book, I realized I wasn't discussing any video games, which seemed like a very big oversight. <laughs> and, uh, well, I've been playing video games since I was a boy and all of these came together to give me a great pretext to buy a PlayStation four and get the last of us because I've, I had heard about it and read about it was not spoiled about the ending, thankfully at that time. And yeah, I played it. I was really impressed by it, played it again and again. And that process of working through my enjoyment of the game and its impression on me turned into a book. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm holding it in my hands right now. Rules of the father in The Last of Us. Masculinity among the ruins of neoliberalism. It's a powerful title. Well, thanks. I didn't want the, the name of the, of the game in the title. That was for the search engine. Mm-hmm. I like the simplicity of rules of the father, but I, I guess it does the trick. It, it, it does. And it did, in fact, when I searched for <laughs> so, like very recent stuff on The Last of Us, it did come up quite, you know, quite soon. So the publisher was right. Yeah, the publisher was right. It did. Uh, you were on this episode right now because the book came up in the search. So uh, <laughs> right. hard, to, hard to be mad about SEO. <laughs> That's true. Um, but uh, uh, and so did you did you come to the game? Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Triandris shared a little bit about the class and the students. Did you come to it because students were talking about it or was it just something on your radar and you were like, hey, let's check that out? Actually, I taught a class devoted entirely to the game but it was after i had i had played it i think it was it was just uh a matter of looking around and and seeing what was out there what kinds of uh, apocalyptic speculation had i not engaged with yet and um yeah that's that's how i came to it cool yeah, yeah, that's great. And I, I'm sure we will return to this uh, because it's kind of unavoidable. But it is interesting the way that you just characterized um, writing the book, you know, or the process, the, the kind of thing that gets you to the book as working through your enjoyment. Right. I think that's how a lot of us come to game studies and think about game studies is uh, thinking through enjoyment and friction and things like that. And The Last of Us, especially the last couple hours of that game and the whole last episode of the TV show really, you know, asks us to think about enjoyment. So I think that'll be really cool to talk about later too. Yeah. I look forward to it. Uh, Jerry. Hi, I'm Jerry Canavan. I'm a, uh, I was also just promoted. So this is a promotion party. Mm. Uh, I was, uh, I'm in the English department at Marquette university. Uh, I mostly write about, uh, science fiction and other kinds of speculative genres. And uh, my first book was on Octavia E. Butler, who uh, legendary African-American science fiction author who uh, wrote stories that often have this kind of uh, grim vibe uh, working on science fiction in the environment, which is my main focus. That's uh, something that I wrestle with a lot uh, in the fiction I consume. And I, I often come to these things from a kind of utopian, dystopian, anti-utopian kind of perspective, trying to work through uh, the politics of what's being imagined in these things. Yeah. And you had not played The Last of Us, right? Until fairly recently? No, I finished the game last week and I finished the series yesterday. I also teach a games class where I let them pick. uh, I don't let them pick all the games, uh, but I do let them pick games at the end (laughs) uh, uh, to develop. uh, And they picked The Last of Us. I tried to caution them against it because it's gory and has jump scares and things like that, but they were really interested in it. And so we uh, wrapped up our course with a study of the last of us as game and then as TV show and kind of work through that. Um, I'm bringing a, a, a tremendous amount of dad energy to this podcast. And the reason I never played the last of us is because my kids were born uh, right before it came out and my gaming changed a lot and the kites of games I play changed a lot. Uh, so I, I completely missed this one. I did know most of the story and the kind of discourse around it in the sequel, but uh, I learned a lot about it while playing it uh, those, this last month. Yeah. And, and part of the reason, uh, you know, that was really fortuitous that, that that all worked out. But part of the reason why I asked you specifically, Jerry, to be on here, you know, 
everyone else had written directly on The Last of Us, and so that made a lot of sense to me. Like, oh yeah, you know, Treandra's piece in um, on, on dystopian blackness, right, is uh, if not the landmark piece on The Last of Us, certainly like right there at the top, right? But I think it's kind of impossible to write about this without passing through that piece and, and engaging with it. But I think similarly uh, for you, Jerry, you know, you're writing about zombies from 10-ish years ago, um, you know, is what was really huge. And so I'm curious, you know, uh, over the course of this episode, if we can draw some of that out from you, some of your, um, you know, neoliberal zombie expertise from, from 10, <laughs> 15 years ago. Um, but you don't tend to write about all that much anymore, I don't think, right? Well, I solved the problem uh, originally. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wrote a piece very early on in the run of The Walking Dead uh, that uh, wound up being uh, uptaken a lot by later zombie folks and then uh, followed up with something on zombies and disability that I that I uh, also think runs through uh, quite a bit of The Last of Us, right? The, that it's as much as it's a fear about uh, race war or something, right? It's also a fear about our own bodies and and how they change on us. Yeah, the 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 so the TV show I had not seen until uh, the past several days. I actually just finished watching the final episode about half an hour ago, <laughs> give, or, give or take. Uh, so I'm I'm right in the same boat. But boat, but it is fascinating fascinating to me that that the TV show remediates all of that stuff to be the first zombie we see. Right, the first <laughs> you know, God forbid we say the word zombie, but the first one we see is uh, uh you know an elderly person. Um, you know, who is transforming even in the background, like un unperceptibly transforming. So um, that's such a great shot. I loved that shot. It's it's something. I don't know. We we can we can talk about <laughs> it. Uh, um so so yeah, I mean I guess I can I can throw out an initial question. I would love to just kind of have some round tabley discussion around it. Um but but I can throw out an initial question here, which is um you know, uh, from each individual's perspective, like what does The Last of Us do for, you know, this is a game studies audience. Um, what kind of inroads do you see The Last of Us providing for thinking about game studies or thinking about our relationship to games? Um, what kind of political issues do you see it having? I ju I'm just curious about the uses of The Last of Us for for the people here, um, because I think that's a question we get a lot from listeners of the show is. Um, you know, I, I want to get started in criticism. I want to get started in thinking critically about games and kind of understanding them in their context. Um, and looking at a case study like The Last of Us, I think, provides some like useful methodological stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I guess that's the question. Uh, how do you use The Last of Us in your work and what do you kind of deploy it to argue with or against? Um, uh, and how does it kind of operate for you? Um, and, and I can make someone answer, I can call on someone or someone can jump on it if they want. I, I can start a little bit, maybe. Um, sure. When, when I write about this kind of, of apocalyptic or, or zombic work, I'm usually thinking about, like I said, utopia, anti-utopia and dystopia, right? And where the coordinates are of those, um, you know, utopian formulations are like imagining a better life for ourselves socially, right? Like a kind of perfected or at least improved society. Dystopias are usually about uh, bad societies. That's the etymology, the bad place. But usually in a framework where there's a there's hope to change it, either through revolution, through running away, or through preventing it, uh, 
through careful action in the present. And then anti-utopias are the kind of the sourest version where it's these stories are ways that we kind of learn that human beings are fundamentally broken and wicked, either biologically or cosmically. And all we'll ever do is hurt each other. Um, And so one of the things we talked a lot in my class about uh, was that on a political level, right? Like what sorts of formulations do we see as we go through uh, for the way people imagine uh, themselves, uh, obviously family, right? Communities and then the nation and things like that. Um, And then also uh, this kind of like deeply personal, almost kind of moral question of, of who we are at base ontologically as human beings and then who we are as players who enjoy simulating to the maximum technological fidelity, the murder of other human beings. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. just kind of working through uh, the, those kinds of moral dimensions. And uh, for the last of us in particular, I think that's interesting uh, in part as, as so many people have written, right. In the way it refuses you certain kinds of moral choices, right. Um, this game doesn't have uh press triangle to let Ellie die, right? Um, It doesn't let you do certain types of things um, and it forces you into a particular moral framework. And so uh, my students were very interested in that and, you know, kind of imagining what's happening in your brain as you uh, strangle somebody or watch yourself uh, be strangled over and over and over again. Yeah, there there is definitely this kind of uh, fantasy of... um possible interiority you know like we can imagine that joel might be doing x or y uh when we control him and uh, what's fascinating about that is how the tv show deals with that you know the there's i think in a general sense the last episode of the last of us hit with a dull thud Mm -hmm. (laughs) it didn't seem like people were very interested in the end of that show uh and there have not been a huge number of you know i mean compare the end of the last of us to the end of succession and it's just nothing you know it's it's point zero zero one percent of the the reactive mm. um uh or you know it's not even the end of succession but these this big climax that's going on with succession over the course of several episodes yeah the, the episode um, we watched in class was the the third one uh long right. long time right, right which was the breakout episode and what's so interesting about that is trying to think through the relationship between games and and film and television is that that's not only not from the game, but it actually makes the sequence in the game impossible, right? They have to kind of uh, hit the abort button on Bill entirely, right? Mm -hmm. After that episode uh, to prevent what is such a fun sequence in the game of Bill's traps and sarcasm and all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, for me, I think what The Last of Us enables us to talk about, just thinking about positioning it, positioning it, it as a text and game study, is is I always love to think about those other mediums. So, so that I haven't taught the TV series yet, but I think I will teach a part of it next year since I watched it. <laughs> I'm going to make use of it, um, and I really want to get students to think about you know what these different mediums really offer us, right? Well, I teach a class that get, ask us to think about cinema storytelling and its relationship to games. And so the same kinds of some of the same kinds of conventions that are used in film to tell stories are obviously also used in television, though these are, you know, different structures. And so to get them to think about what each type of structure and what each type of medium enables. And now with The Last of Us being a transmedia text, a text that is, um, you know, has life in all of these different spaces and a form in these different spaces, I think it can be instructive just kind of like structure Structurally, in terms of storytelling and thinking about, you know, we were just talking about that episode. Um, I guess it's episode three with uh, Bill and Frank. What what does that form of, of storytelling in television allow us to find out about these characters? 
And do we like the version or, you know, just how differently is that experienced through gamic action um, as you play in the game? Right. And then mostly through inference about their about these various relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. And and my students love to say, you know, games are so interactive. (laughs) That's what's different. Games, there's interactivity in games. And I always try to, um, you know, challenge them, impress them a bit and to think about interactivity across mediums and how it still functions uh, uh, in television and in film and in, you know, reading a comic book or a novel, for example, the things that you have to infer and imagine as a reader or a viewer um, does count in my book as as a kind of interactivity. And and so thinking about, uh, you know, do we get a more comprehensive or coherent story in the television series than we do in the in the game, for example? I mean, some of the origins of of this outbreak of the pandemic are are attempted to be explained in the TV show. Um, And then the question of linearity, you know, a lot a lot of folks will say uh, that that games allow you to kind of experience things in a nonlinear way. Um, but compared to the TV show, which will employ flashbacks, The Last of Us is it actually a great series for thinking about um, temporal relations and structure because, in general, it's a series that does employ a variety of flashbacks, especially in The Last of Us 2. I think this is much more mm-hmm. pronounced. Um, but when you compare it to the TV show's use of flashbacks, for example, to give backstory and context, uh, how, you know, how is that effective? Is that desirable? I asked uh, students in my class yesterday Day when we were just briefly talking about this, you know, how many of their parents have played The Last of Us? <laughs> this is maybe an unfair mm-hmm. question. How many of your parents have played <laughs> The Last of Us? And how many of your parents have seen the TV show? And uh, uh, maybe, you know, it was not surprisingly, no one raised their hands for their parents uh, playing The Last of Us, but at least half of them raised their hands that their parents had seen the, the, the television show. And so um, in thinking about that new audience, that fresh audience that's going to come to the story through the TV show, uh, you know, wanted them to get to, to, to sort of look at things from their parents' eyes of you're just seeing this franchise for the first time, this beloved video game franchise that is so revered among players in so many ways. How did that translate uh, to in, in television and how do your parents feel about it as a new audience? Were they hooked? Were they curious? You know, kind of, et cetera. And, and what are some, tr- some tricks of the trade in terms of storytelling that might have done that for them if it did. So I like thinking about that. And then in terms of, of, of social dynamics and society, I mean, I because I teach this dystopias class, I also like to think about these visions of the future and of society that The Last of Us encourages us to think about. Uh, you know, who will survive the apocalypse? Who's there? What are these uh, social formations like? And so I think The Last of Us is a good text for thinking about gender, race, queerness, um, of course, the politics of these new structures and relationships and configurations. Um, a little bit about utopia and thinking about Jack in the community um, that seems like the most to be the most functional of communities uh, and, and it's introduced in the the TV show I think in in um, but it's not they're approaching Jackson I think for most of the game but in mm-hmm. the TV show in season one we're able to see what that space is and so this vision of a society that they say right outright 
this is a commune. Yes, this is a commune, right? That, that this is how we're operating um, by by the sense of, of uh, you know, equality and shared responsibilities. And so I think that I, I'm interested in that. What are the social formations? What does society look like? And then, of course, because I write about race, uh, what's happening to to marginalized uh, subjectivities and people in this in these spaces? Are we uh, cultivating empathy? That's what I talk about in my in my chapter in gaming representation um, for folks only to sort of vacate it. Right. Like Henry and Sam, I think, are characters that uh, kind of help raise this question. Uh, but also Joel <laughs> and his murderous <laughs> rampage, killing everybody all the time. Like just these moral questions that the that the uh, franchise raises, I think, also allows us to think about fan studies and reception studies in a way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And especially because all of those conversations are kind of what drive discourse around it. You know, I think that if there were not those, you know, both heightened and like very apparent questions, especially the Joel's murderous rampage one. Uh, but but, you know, the in terms of what's been discussed about the game, Henry and Sam, uh, you know, shows up quite a bit uh, in those discussions broadly um, now, May, not when the game came out, but but now, you know, almost a decade later. Um, and yeah, you know, it's a pretty vibrant fan community and, and this might be a really good place to kick it over to Jesse too, because Jesse's entire introduction to rules of the father is kind of centered around, I forget the exact language you use, maybe extra gamic. Um, but, but uh, Jesse, I don't know if you feel comfortable like off the dome doing this, but the kind of, uh, argument you make in the introduction, of your book's really fascinating for how it connects what's in the game with what's out outside of the game. Uh, and I'd be curious if you could maybe give like the short version of that, because I think it's pretty fascinating. Oh, I was I was ready to answer your first question. Uh, oh, no, you can. You can. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can we can go back to that once I get warmed up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because I found your, your question to be really fruitful and, you know, trying to work through that question. What are the uses of The Last of Us mm-hmm. led me to write the book and try to really figure that out? And so I'll try to, I'll try to, con- to condense my answer. Cause I could name a hundred things, uh, building off some of the really fascinating things that Jerry and Trey Andrea already said. Um, so for starters, I think the game is useful for thinking about how in apocalyptic speculative culture, we're invited to think about the end or something like the end of the world at the same time that the world never really ends and can't because then there would be nothing to imagine. There would be no story. Nothing would happen. What we see in The Last of Us, like we see in other examples of apocalyptic speculation, is that the end of the world is usually a pretext or an excuse to do something else to tell some other kind of story that might otherwise seem implausible or otherwise not as compelling to tell. So the question that I ask is, what is the function of the end of the world in the game as it sets up some other story? That's a story in Neil Druckmann's terms, you know, the creative director and writer of the game about love. Mm-hmm. So that's another really important use that I really tried to think about in the book. 
use of the game. I think Druckmann meant that narratively that the game is about uh, is that the game is a love story. I like to think about it the other way around, though, namely that telling a love story was a way of working through a particular game mechanic and a, and a hated one, because you asked also what is the use of The Last of Us for game studies. Mm -hmm. That game mechanic, that hated game mechanic is the escort mission. Nobody, <laughs> nobody likes it, right? And they knew, Naughty Dog and Druckmann knew that nobody likes it. But it was as if somebody went into the boardroom one day and said, hey, you know what we should do? We should make a game that's all about the escort mission and but make people love it. Make it so that people will think this is the greatest game that's ever been made, which is, you know, resonates with some of the accolades given to the game. What I mean is in the escort mission, you often have you, the playable character, need to guide a non-playable character through some dangerous game space. And the, you as a player often get really annoyed because the non-playable character gets in trouble all the time. You have to stop what you're doing and rescue them. And uh, it interrupts the usual gameplay mechanics. This is somewhat like the, the, the relationship between the player as Joel and Ellie in The Last of Us. She's following you uh, a lot of the time, and it's uh, the, one of the most powerful uh, processes in the game is to make you, the player, no longer hate this character that you have to take care of, but to develop a loving relationship to. And how The Last of Us does that through a combination of... Uh, coding, procedures, gameplay mechanics, and narrative, I think is a really fascinating question. And, and finally, uh, that topic of love, I think is really important for thinking about how The Last of Us represents fatherhood and what it means to be uh, uh, a, a man and a father. Not that all players identify as men and fathers, but I think the game really invites all players to try on that role. And it's really that message that the game represents something essential, timeless about what it means to be a dad and love your kids that really stuck with me, that, that really bothered me actually, because I found it compelling at first and over time, um, came to be more skeptical about it and uh, mm -hmm. trying to work through a critique of that message, uh, I think is, is also a really important uh, use of the game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, uh, the, the last of us comes out in that moment that now in retrospect, right. Uh, has been characterized as the dadification of games. And, right. and it was at the time too, you know, uh, Maddie Myers is writing about this in Bioshock infinite and, and that cluster of games, uh, around in, in that moment, you know, so it, it was called pretty quickly, uh, as it comes. But I mean, I think that is the enduring legacy of the game and that's the enduring legacy of the TV show too, right? It's, it's, it's dad stuff, dad energy, <laughs> <laughs> dad, dad tropes, dad genre. Um, 
and the stuff that Treandre was talking about, about, um, you know, how many of your parents raise your hand if your parents have played the game versus uh, watch the show. I mean, I'm, I'm so eager for those uh, for those parents to go back and uh, play the game and get to carry ladders around for like 14 hours <laughs> <laughs> and like help people jump up on a wall. Right. Like there's something about these narrative strategies that you're talking about, but also this kind of like blunt, uh, uh, you know, fairly banal work kind of stuff, but it is also in support of another character. I mean, I think talking about the, um, the radicalization of the escort mission, I think is right. I think that's, that, that is a spot on way of thinking about, about the game and and how it works. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess I uh, jumping off from that, maybe that's uh, Jesse, what you just said might be a good place for, um, Jerry and Treandre to weigh in here about, you know, dadification and the kind of dad narrative and, and how it hits and how it doesn't. Looks like Jerry, it looks like you have unmuted. You're ready to talk about dad stuff. <laughs> oh, I was I was going to talk about time some more and duration because that was one of the <laughs> things I actually love about the game is how long oh, it takes right. to do certain things. Uh, the, the It doesn't do f- film cuts, right? Like you're going to you're going to drag that ladder right. the whole way across. Ellie's going to walk the whole way across. She's going to climb up. Right. You have to prime that generator it's a uh, it's does interesting things with time um and just before i lose the thought i i i think one of the key differences between it and the tv adaptation uh is around time and, and specifically mm-hmm. the kind of time loopness of it right that the most operative experience of the last of us as a game for me was watching joel die uh which the the tv show doesn't depict right um i watched him die in every conceivable way uh and then <laughs> slowly over time with this kind of like preternatural futurological sense he could determine where everybody was uh, on the map and kill them with whatever he had left in his pockets a brick two bullets right uh and and a molotov cocktail or something like that um it, it is it is an interesting game to think about time um as somebody who is a dad and has already promised to bring dad energy um i i think the game captures a certain uh, aspect of fatherhood really well that the TV show kind of intensifies, which is that um, the kind of attraction revulsion issue, right? That you love your children so much, but to love them that much is to be willing to let them go in different ways, right? And uh, Marlene's taunts are not incorrect, right? About what Ellie might've wanted or that someday she'll grow up and leave you anyway, right? That the world will treat her bad no matter how hard you try to protect her. Um, I think that stuff really does does resonate with the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the inevitable failure of any parent, right? Um, to, to be the parent they wanted or to protect their child from every conceivable type of harm. Um, knowing what the ending was and that it would end in this massacre, uh, my students had kind of primed me for like, you know, you're going to kill every, all these innocent people. Um, I was shocked by how little I cared about any firefly in the game. Um, I didn't feel a single ounce of compunction uh, in that hospital level uh, at all. Right. And maybe that's, um, my skepticism that their plan makes any sense uh, to cure the the disease um, or that it's actionable, or maybe it is just fully buying into the dadness of it all. But um, I didn't even, I didn't hesitate to kill the surgeon long enough to trigger any of the, you must kill the surgeon to proceed stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I shot them all as soon as I walked in the room. Uh, and I, I think the game primes something really interesting there. Why the last episode hits like a thud, I think in part is because, um, of that, it, it isn't as compelling a moral choice as the game wants it to be, right? Um, the TV show tries to frame it like mass shooting footage, right? Um, mm-hmm. Joel stalking a hospital. Uh, but I don't know that most viewers would necessarily feel that way about it. Um, 
I, I think there's a famous retcon, right, in the second one where they make the hospital not look filthy, right, in order to uh, give you some uh, possible belief, however meager, that they really could do what they claim they're able to do. But I didn't, I didn't feel bad about it at all. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I mean, I wrote about this. This was one of the <laughs> challenges for me with The Last of Us as a game, you know, which I guess it's been 10 years now <laughs> since yeah, I played yeah, it. It's so yeah, crazy. Yeah. Uh, so it's wild. playing it 10 years ago and then just, you know, I literally just <laughs> finished the TV series, the last episode this morning. Um, so we just <laughs> watched that uh, before I got on. And um you know, it hit me then when I played it, you know, that uh, and, and, and even more so in The Last of Us 2. But I think the way The Last of Us 1 ended, it was still very striking to me at the time that, you know, it, partly because the Fireflies are like a coded racial rebellion for me, that they, you know, the leader of the Fireflies is Marlene. She's a black woman. And, um, you know, black characters in science fiction are often cast in this sort of resistant rebellion rebellion mode as key <laughs> figures in this imaginary. Uh, so, you know, I sort of saw it as this potential, um, you know, racial sort of underground movement in a way, but, but definitely the fact that Marlene is a, is a sort of black leader of the fireflies. I think we actually get a little more, dimension and backstory to her in the in the tv series where we mm -hmm. learn about her relationship to ellie a little more if it was in the game i missed it uh but but marlene giving ellie over to fedra so that she can grow up there but marlene kind of watching from afar and trying to uh you know protect from afar this this kid who's immune um i mean obviously i don't mm -hmm. know if all the listeners are aware of this but ellie is seemingly the only immune person so far that anyone has come across in uh, this story. And so, um, you know, the stakes are high. <laughs> the stakes are high for what uh, Ellie might potentially be able to offer humanity. And and certainly, you know, um, there is this dad narrative here. There is this, you know, I, th I think of it as the story of protective paternity um, that is at the heart of this. And I think that's what endears fans to it. So by a lot, even now, when I look back at comments uh, and the discourse around this, that's the piece uh, that people People latch onto this love, this mm -hmm. empathy mm -hmm. between Ellie and Joel, and how Joel is able to, you know, despite his losses. I mean, Joel is a post-traumatic stress like survivor, and is is mm -hmm. I think that is evoke is, is more evocative in the TV series of his like panic attacks and sort of you know um, blurred memories of of the, of the past or the, the memories bleed into the present, right? That he's like in chronic uh, state of trauma, and so people tend to really latch on to the fact that this love story and, and, mm -hmm. and it sounds right to me Jesse you know to kind of think of it as a love story uh, is able to kind of recuperate his his humanity right and that's part of it and even though he's still pretty murderous he <laughs> is now murdering for the sake of this love which I ultimately mm -hmm. find to be a very sort of and this might speak to some of your skepticism Jesse mm -hmm. I ultimately find that to be a, a troubling paradigm for a love story that <laughs> that right. That yeah. this is this is how this is is expressed through a rampage, a murderous rampage. Um, not only that, though, to me, the key piece of it is Ellie's agency and whether or not we're convinced that the flyer fies really have a solution. We still have the facts that in both stories, the, the TV show and the game, 
Joe kills all the scientists. So the doctors, the scientists, if you're on the side of where is the way out of the pandemic, where is the way, the the hope and the dream for the future? If you're on the side that science might play and, and knowledge might play a role in some of that, you know, um, then then good luck, because I think Joel has killed everybody who's central uh, to this particular project of, of being able <laughs> to kind of medically engineer a solution. Right. They need did that's yeah, right. over. Whether it was believable or not, it's now not even a faint possibility. So there's that. But to me, the fundamental rift and challenge here that I don't think at least in my review of the fan discourse, it may have changed because this has been a long time and I'm not up to date on what people are saying about the TV show. Uh, or Well, and, and I guess I actually did see a, a lot of the comments about The Last of Us 2 where this is more pronounced, but there's a complete, um, you know, dismissal of Ellie's desires, of Ellie's agency. Mm-hmm. So whether or not mm-hmm. the, the Fireflies were a good solution is not as important to me as Ellie says, I want to do this, right? And even if the consequences are death, she doesn't explicitly say this in the TV show, but she tries to at the end of it and telling Joel, look, I've lost these people, these people who I cared about. Riley, another black character that Mm -hmm. is important to teach Ellie her immunity, that she's actually immune. Mm -hmm. That relationship is what shows her that Uh, Henry and Mm -hmm. Sam, two other black characters who are dead. All the black people are dead in this in this in this universe, uh, mostly except for the recasting of Maria, I think, in the uh, in, in Utah. Utopia Jackson, Ellie says, I wanted to, I want to make a difference in this way. Like these are people I cared about. And if I can make an imprint and change the structure of this world, right, instead of just surviving in the dystopia, limping along and, and, and living off of the scraps we can, you know, we can, we can uh, find, I want to be able to potentially change the overall structure and experience of this world. If I can, if I can be used for this vaccine or this possible vaccine. So to me, it becomes a toxic love story once Joel does not care about that, once his uh, call to protect and to serve and to escort, um, mm-hmm. you know, is is more important than her agency. And again, she, the character is very vocal about this in The Last of Us 2. That was not the decision I would have made. You And she figures out you went and murdered all these people and you lied to me. <laughs> right? And, and so uh, it, so that is something that she could not forgive him for because it's not the decision she would have made. So to eviscerate her own agency and her desire in this uh, relationship is a problem to me, right? It doesn't be, it's not a love story anymore. It's this, I don't know, it's troubling image of protective paternity or, or the toxic masculinity or something. I don't know what we want to call it, but it does raise a very valuable question of what happens with the escort mission when the person you're escorting doesn't have the same destination as you. Anymore, and so that's what that that's what the story is sort of I think getting us to see is this fracture of their of their of their possible paths that the Ellie wants something different than Joel, uh, mm-hmm. but we uh, often and, and in the fan community find ways to really empathize and understand uh, Joel's kind of forcing her down his path of like I I'm he's speaking from a place of acute trauma and and transference mapping on his uh, desires for. His his, you know, lost daughter onto Ellie and you're going to stay alive no matter what, you know, humanity be damned um, or d- d- discrediting the possible possibility of like a scientific solution. So, um, 
you know, those are my some of my thoughts about yeah. that is that that's really where the rub is for me in this in this in this story. I think it's productively done. Right. It's productively irritating us. Like, but I think yeah. what I yeah. found is that the there was less discussion about there's more sort of empathizing and identification with Joel's decision mm-hmm. than I would have hoped. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, a, you know, that part is disappointing, not necessarily the story. Story though, you know, again, killing all the black people that 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 is challenging for me in the story. Uh, but what I'm looking for is what does it get us talking about? And and, and I think consistently people still say, "Look, Joel made the right decision. I didn't I didn't see the fireflies as viable, and uh, Ellie was too young to be able to make that decision herself." Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to say, I, I, that's I mean, that's part of what I find so moving about the ending, honestly, is that um, he he makes this action because he can't let her go. And that's the thing that drives a wedge between them that can never be healed. Right. Like he can't hold on to uh, this relationship he, he he wants to be building with her precisely because um, of the action he takes um, in terms of, of the viability. I think the 10 years does matter in part just passing through covid um, watching what was Going on in both the game and the show, the idea that they could isolate, synthesize, mass produce and mass distribute a vaccine just seemed utterly fanciful. They seemed they seemed as fanatical as the hunters or anybody else. Right. Um, So I just didn't I I didn't think there was a future. Um, And I understand why Joel wanted to save Ellie. And I understand why she never forgave him for it. Right. I think that's the the tragedy of the game and why that um, incredibly. ambiguous ending right this this uh tell tell me a lie and i'll believe it and neither neither of them are able to is is Mm -hmm. beautiful right that that is very much uh what it means to be a dad over the long term right um of of having to let your child go in that way and how hard it is what i find so fascinating about what what uh kind of what you both just said there is that uh the last of us does this really weird thing that basically very few other science fiction games do and i don't i don't think this is a positive uh, although maybe as i talk about it, it it'll turn into a positive but the idea that uh the moral decision we just kind of like take as is right like it occurs right <laughs> like joel does the thing and either you find that acceptable because of the way you read the fireflies or you find it to, you know, and I think I'm land somewhere closer to Triandria here in terms of just like when I was playing it, I was like, oh, well, we're doing this like of all the things we could do, we're doing this. But what's fascinating to me is that uh, that uh, there's this desire to interrogate the premise uh, mm-hmm. in 95 percent of science fiction games. Right. If you're playing Bioshock Infinite or whatever. You're like, all right, there's ghosts like who cares, right? Of course there's ghosts. Let's do it. Um, but <laughs> the the Last of Us uniquely, I think, among science fiction games actually forces you in your evaluation of whether this was right or wrong or acceptable or unacceptable or rational or irrational, whatever, forces you to be like, well, do I think that this ragtag group of revolutionaries can synthesize a virus, which is just not something that we do for the most part in video games, period, right? It, the, the, the premise is a given quite often um and I, I i think there's something going on with that and i think there's something going on with the way the game identifies so heavily with joel the, the fact that the you know even in your acceptance of it jerry right mm-hmm. like there's a very plain 
a plainness of like Joel has done a bad thing, right? Like mm-hmm. whether or not that makes sense to him is whatever, but Joel has done something bad. But what's fascinating to me is when you look at these conversations as they happen, and I wrote about these in my book, and Jesse, there's some of that in, in his book that you might want to talk about here. Um, but uh, when you look at those fan conversations, that interrogation of the premise becomes the entire mm-hmm. contextualization of the moral choice, right? People cannot get over the fact that Ellie never says in unambiguous language, she never signs a release form <laughs> that says, you know, you can experiment on me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is really fascinating that, that the science fictionally part, you know, science fiction ish part of it becomes load bearing in a way that it so very rarely does. And it, and it becomes load bearing in a way that often distracts from some of the other stuff, you know, um, for a very long time and and um you know other people can attest to this for a very long time the murder of literally every black character went relatively unremarked there were a couple of reviews that came out you know and i was part of the group of people reviewing that game when it initially came out uh and then when the remaster came out um it went relatively unremarked it, it was a footnote if it were something um uh, because so many words were eaten up by interrogating the kind of zombie fiction and then is this possible the what if scenarios that are within it <laughs> and so it's fascinating to me that the that genre kind of eats social issues here and as everyone here knows and if you're listening I, I hope you know this um, that you know genre is always remediating those social issues it's always working through them and it's very fascinating to me that um, games discourse and even some games writing uh, and games academic writing and science fiction academic writing uh, could only hold one thing at one time and couldn't kind of look at the complexity of it. I think we're out of it, you know, at this point. And, you know, Jesse's book has a number of chapters that are dedicated directly to this. Um, the chapter that I wrote in my book is about this. Trandra obviously has this this major piece. So, um, you know, that, that it's obviously part of the academic games course as a piece, but I wouldn't say it's the dominant form. And that's fascinating to me, too. Can I say something about the ending? Yeah, please. So, so like Jerry, when I played this at the end, I just killed everybody without any qualms. And that seemed like the right thing to do because after all, I had spent hours with Joel pretending Mm -hmm. to be Joel, being absorbed in Joel, seeing primarily his perspective. And yes, you get to play as Ellie. And that was a big deal at the moment, but it's only for, you can't even say one chapter or one level. It's for a part of it. And even when you play as her, you're essentially a watered down version of Joel. You have the same game mechanics. You, uh, there, there isn't a fundamentally different way to play the last of us as Ellie mm-hmm. in, in contrast to Joel. So you, as a player, you invest so much time with Joel. You primarily get his perspective. It is quite difficult not to relate very strongly to, to him uh, in the game. And I, I, I think that this is the, the basis, the real experiential gamic basis for why not all, but many players think he did the right thing. Now, Something happens to to that dynamic, though, which is a uh, a product of the combination of of gameplay and narrative in the game when we watch it on television. Mm-hmm. And that is because, in in my view, the focus must uh, disperse in the television show. There just is not enough content there, I think, for 
how many episodes is it? 10 for a 10 episode or multi-episode TV series on The Last of Us. I uh, Originally, Druckmann has talked about uh, the first adaptation or proposed adaptation was going to be a movie. And given the tight focus, again, mainly on Joel, but a little bit also on Ellie, on these two characters, I think that's quite appropriate for a movie. Television is different, though. And what we expect from prestige HBO television, like Game of Thrones or The Wire or The Sopranos, we, we, we expect sprawling, complex, interconnected uh, stories with multiple characters that we care about over years and years. And then it's kind of hard to, to wrap it up. You know, I'm still upset about the end of Game of Thrones. But when they, <laughs> when this stuff succeeds, we really do care about all these different characters and their different storylines and how they're all interconnected. The Last of Us television show would like to do that. It constantly is taking the focus off of the game's main characters and broadening, broadening it uh, most uh, clearly and powerfully in that episode about Bill and Frank. And one consequence, I think, of this diffusion of the focus is, at least in my viewing, Ellie's perspective is much more compelling. Mm -hmm. We just do not spend as much time with Joel in the TV show as we do with him in the game. We see the situation um, for a longer amount of time and in more depth from Ellie's perspective. Maybe that's why the ending of the TV show is not as uh, explosive, not as memorable as, as in the game. But that might be a good thing. Because it's again, the TV show is not about Joe in the in the same way that the game is. The TV show, of course, still wants us to pay a lot of attention to Joe, but it's in my view just as much about about Ellie. And even though she still does not get to say what she wants, she does not give her account at the end there. I have a stronger sense of what she would want in the TV show than I, than I would in the game. Mm -hmm. uh, and partially some of that too, and this is going back to something you were saying earlier, Trey Andrea, the um, part of that backstory we get from Marlene and some of the stuff that we get that's about Ellie specifically and her thoughts and opinions on the world that shows up in the TV show. That's in the canonical, this is a big quotation marks, the canonical graphic novel that Neil Druckmann <laughs> wrote. Um, and I'm blinking on the artist who, who worked on that uh, with him. Um, I can pull it up and say it in just a minute. But uh, so some of that backstory gets filled in in a fully, you know, it is it is canonical to the series. It is information that informs uh, the the Riley DLC uh, left behind, maybe um, uh, all of that kind of stuff. But so it's interesting that 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 perspective is written, right? The you know, this kind of closer attachment to Ellie exists. It's just not in the video game you might have played. It's in this other thing. Oh, Faith Aaron Hicks is the person who uh, drew it. And I think maybe co-wrote it as well. Um, but, you know, it's all this ancillary, you know, paratextual material. It's over there. It exists somewhere. Right. And then the TV show is this opportunity to bring it back in, right. even though we just got the quote unquote remastered um, uh, The Last of Us Part One. Right. That did that made no content changes in, in those terms. So it's fascinating where 
um, where The Last of Us remediates itself and, and under what conditions and how it draws in its own paratexts. Uh, it's fascinating to me, too. I, you know, it sounds like we've all watched the TV show fairly recently. It's fascinating for me when I got on HBO Max uh, and clicked on The Last of Us. The fr- the ad I got at the beginning was for listening to The Last of Us official podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Which, by the way, I mean, was huge for, in my chapter. I, half of the arguments I make in my chapter about the thing are just things people talk about in that podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote about my polygon piece, too, because it's it's the cheat codes for how <laughs> how these people think about it. And it's also kind of the cheat codes. Just to be clear, we've mentioned Neil Druckmann's name a whole lot. Uh, but uh, Bruce Straley, you know, if you listen to that podcast and you listen to the information about where major overwhelmingly important pieces of The Last of Us have come from, um, everyone in that podcast for the season one will, uh, mentions Bruce Straley's name quite a bit. And it's quite fascinating to me that after the fact, uh, you know, and especially in the the promotion of uh, the TV show and the promotion of The Last of Us Part Two, uh, Druckmann has become the sole kind of inheritor of, of the crown. Um, because he is so heavily involved in all of it and Bruce Straley's off living his life. But so that's a fascinating thing where there are these like, you know, like every media object, it brings certain things in. It brings these paratexts into it. It brings fans in in very particular ways through gameplay, through aesthetics, through these kind of <laughs> cinematographic modes. And then it also is shaving things off in order to make itself more linear. And of course, to bring in the bard himself. Craig Mason, <laughs> but but Treandre, you were you were unmuted just a minute ago, right when I started talking, and it looked like looked like Jerry was in in line, maybe right after. Well, I was just gonna kind of uh, toss a question at you in a way, Cameron, because oh, this, yeah, sure. this week we read it was chapter one from your book um, where you're explaining mechanics of speculation. And, and how they work in games and how you see that process taking out. So I, I don't know if you want to talk about that here, um, but I think that that these, you know, um, the Jesse's kind of comments about the TV show, you know, versus the game make, make me think of where how mechanics of speculation in, in your mind are, are possibly working in the game that does make it a different experience. And for me, you know, kind of raises questions about the gender dynamics of form. If mm-hmm. if if it's true, and I I felt Ellie, Ellie's perspective quite strongly in the game, the original game too, in 2013, um, even though it is a superficial mechanically superficial switch to be in her perspective at the end of the game when you're kind of walking and you're and this is after the the mass murder and the the scientists and the (laughs) black people you know this is you're walking as ellie as opposed to joel i sort of Mm -hmm. saw that mechanically as as an invitation to distance ourselves a little from joel's perspective which i agree the game, the first game is all about. This is about living from this this subjectivity. And and Joel's kind of agency is is gonna set it sets the stage, right? Not versus the Ellie's. Well, I saw that perspective shift the few moments when you are playing as Ellie as getting us to think about that. You know, is this a mechanic mm-hmm. of, of, of speculation of getting us to think about the distance that we want to have as players from mm-hmm. Joel's decision, as inviting us to think about it. and it worked for me. I know it did work for most players right that they felt more superficial but as as far as sort of jogging us a little and jostling us and saying you know look you're not even i can't even be this dude right now you know that i'm i have to be her (laughs) to literally kind of like embody her to see her 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 stance in this and then as Mm -hmm. far as as um 
players, you know, saying that, look, Ellie didn't sign a consent form. I think it does raise the question of how consent is being thought about here and mm-hmm. the very kind of arbitrary, strict rules, uh, maybe a misapplication or misappropriation of the concept of consent, you know, that in order for her to to say, yes, I want to be, you know, I want to I want to be a cure. I want to be a part of the solution. She would have to kind of write this down. Um, and in, in absence of that kind of consent form, we have Joel's again kind of authority and his agency taking center stage mm-hmm. when she she does say to him that's not my cho- my choice would have been to be the solution right she says this repeatedly the last of us two was all about uh about that perspective about her desire mm-hmm. her her riff with joel is all about him he, she she realizes because they never she never believed him and saying that you know the fireflies found lots of other people by the way and and you're not the only immune person and they can't make a vaccine like she never believed his story and so the last mm-hmm. of us two uh their relationship is poisoned by that um and and then she goes on this completely improbable uh, not unbelievable revenge quest uh to deal with her grief over his death uh but really she has this she has this um grudge against him because he didn't honor her desire he didn't honor mm-hmm. you know she, she she had already said in so many ways i don't i want to be part of the solution so there's a misunderstanding or appropriation of the concept of consent for me but the two forms the television show um which has at its disposal this ability to tell these backstories about ellie's mother about you know other characters in this universe i wrote on twitter yesterday as i was going through these television episodes i'm not a particularly a fan of either but the last of us works better as a tv series than a game i stand by Mm -hmm. that at least from the standpoint of of this aspect of its storytelling and getting us to see uh ellie's and actually own and 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 stand by what ellie's perspective is in all of this but it is i think partly because of of what you know jesse says is you haven't spent 60 hours playing as joel right which the mechanics of that the, the mechanical sort of um, contract is that we have been this dude we are going to be this guy and we're going to ride or die as the as the dad right the dad the dad the dad expressing this love it didn't work for me in the game but I see why it works for so many people and really adhering to that mindset and that perspective and we simply don't have that in the TV show so all you have more of what you have is uh, you know this this perspective that prioritizes Ellie's agency and her desire and then all the other characters in this world which again give us that distance important like perspective shift from joel and there's lots of perspective shifts where we can see the action and the world unfolding from these other characters where you simply don't get that in the game mm-hmm. yeah and just really briefly to to re- respond to that question about mechanics of speculation so uh right after people are listening to this my book will be out in paperback by the way uh it's been very expensive for a very long time but in may of 2023 it will be out for i think 20 dollars as a paperback <laughs> so it's it's going to be cheap please purchase it you, you were <laughs> worth the full price to me cameron i bought it uh, thank you <laughs> full i price. appreciate it's it yes great. thank you for spending a hundred dollars on the book <laughs> um but the uh but yeah in that book i kind of argue that you know um playing off of Samuel Delaney's work uh, from the 70s, uh, where he's really thinking about, you know, he, he's kind of engaging with deconstruction and a few other things. Um, and he's thinking about kind of the minimum viable product for speculation, right? What What is the construction of words that can happen to make you start thinking about the world as it isn't? 
Um, and so, I, you know, I this is something that and actually, weirdly enough, this all comes back around the initial kernel of that book was published in science fiction film and television which was commissioned by jerry <laughs> i don't know seven years ago or something so or you saw it at a conference and, and asked if i wanted to submit it so you know it all comes back around but um the uh but yeah so i was thinking about in that book you know mechanics of speculation uh uh what is the minimum viable thing uh in order to generate speculation and video games are quite interesting because every single moment we are making all of these different kind of uh extrapolative leaps about what might occur in the next moment if we do something and so how that kind of fits in with what everything's been said so far is that uh you know as jesse put it really well earlier right that you're spending all this time with joel and you're making all of these micro decisions and as jerry said earlier you also get to watch all of the repercussions of your bad decisions, right? You get to watch yourself die as Joel over and over and over and over again. And there is, I think, this alignment function that comes out of that. And it comes out of thinking of yourself, if not as a character, then as a container for yourself, right? And there's this mm -hmm. attachment to the avatar. And, you know, lots of people uh, have, have written, you know, there's that big mass piece that's about um, I say mass in the terms of there's like five or six authors on it that Darshana and Tom Apperley worked on and a few other people uh, that came out a couple years ago. That's about the kind of history of the Avatar and how we think of the Avatar and how that kind of goes back to the faith traditions that it's ripping out of. Um, but they're, they're in the decision making and the interactive capability of games and its capacity to do that within a broader aesthetic arrangement. Uh, those micro decisions of if I if I am doing this within this particular container, then what will happen that produces all of these different kind of run on effects. And when I write about The Last of Us in The Last of Us Part Two in that book uh, is the kind of development of the argument. Um, it, it, those decisions run smack dab into the cinema cinematographic, right? The the way that Henry and Sam in particular in The Last of Us Part One, that, the way that all works out and the kind of how I read the kind of anti blackness of that that set of scenes or that level or whatever uh, is that it, it can't function as a interactive scenario. It has to kind of kick out to cinema in order to do the things it needs to do to Henry and Sam and with the kind of inherent politics of what what's going on there, because the game can't really think of them as full people, let alone full characters. They need to kind of be cut apart and spliced into this editing apparatus that uh, is that's not there when you're, you know, moving uh, ladders around and hoisting Ellie all the time. There's this kind of uncutness that Jerry was talking about earlier. And so <laughs> when thinking about mechanics of speculation, I, you know, I think that's part of it is that in the, you know, watching the show, you never have to think like, what would, what would Pedro Pascal do? Right? Like <laughs> I, I watched him, you know, and I think the, the kind of uh, institutional shooting setting, Jerry, that you, you <laughs> referenced earlier, the mass shooter, I think that's really appropriate to think about the final scene because he, he walks from room to room and guns people down. And there is no, for me, no opportunity or even consideration of empathy with his position, right? He's a mass murderer. Um, and th I, that makes that character... I, I mean, the TV show does this thing where, in the game, at least, you can theoretically empathize with the position or at least understand why Joel is doing the things he does, although I was pretty distant from that when I played the game the first time. Um, and then after that, you watch him be a complete worm, right? Like, he's just yeah. a liar. Like, he's disgusting <laughs> in some ways. And in the TV show, for me, it was being disgusted with him and then being disgusted in a different way right after when he starts yeah. lying. Um, and so there's that kind of combo. But but yeah. I, I just want to jump in before we move off this 
topic because this is such sure. an interesting crisis for uh, The Last of Us as a franchise, this perspectival drama, because it seems like uh, for many players of the first game, the perspective is Joel, and then occasionally there are these interesting subversions where you play a sour for a little bit. Isn't that interesting that you play as this uh, teen girl in mm-hmm. the beginning, and then she dies, and the protagonist shifts. And then when you play as Ellie, um, there are mechanical differences, right? She can't do certain types of attacks. She doesn't have as many weapons, right? Isn't that interesting? Um, but what Naughty Dog has done is emphasize that more and more as they release more content, right? So the the DLC, again, you're all Ellie, and even many of the mechanics are turned into jokes, right? Where now you're having a water gun fight instead of a gunfight, mm-hmm. or the stealth mechanics are now so two kids can play hide and seek in an abandoned mall, right? Um, and then obviously the, the kind of fan freak out over The Last of Us Part Two is in part is just that you didn't give me that I could be Joel, but now I have two flamethrowers, right? But instead <laughs> you've moved to this kind of completely fractured perspectival um, mode where not only can you no longer play as Joel, but you're playing as someone who hates Ellie, right? Um, uh, for, you know, around half the game. Um, and so like that sort of thing has turned the fan base on the, on the franchise to a large extent, right? There are people who, who obviously love the last of us too. Um, but it's reception has been driven in large part by the idea. It's like, no, I am Joel. You can't, you can't take that away from me. Right. Yeah. There Absolutely. was a fallout about it. People really hated it. They were really upset <laughs> about not yeah. being Joel anymore. And it, and in The Last of Us 2, Ellie becomes Joel. She becomes this yeah. completely irrational rational revenge quest person, as does Abby. I mean, her. I don't. we're not talking about The Last of Us 2. Uh, but again, it extends this conversation into into thinking about gender and to thinking about mm-hmm. what performance uh, these young women have to absorb because of their relationship to the men in their life, both their fathers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in Ellie's case, she just absorbs this rage and trauma that Joel, you know, really inherited. Mm-hmm. So that's what you play as. But but fans, you know, um, had to align with with Ellie versus Abby. And again, I just wasn't there for that. I wasn't there mm-hmm. for these two uh, really interesting in many ways. Women, um, a- a- Abby's character kind of presentation. And there's also a lot more going on with kind of queerness and maybe non-binary mm-hmm. uh, rep- gaming representations in The Last of Us 2. Um, and I thought what was pro- what I wanted. And again, this is me being sick of dystopias for the most part. So um, sick of dystopias that don't have the same critical imperative uh, Mm -hmm. that just don't have a strong enough kind of critical invitation anymore. But what I wanted was for Ellie and Abby to unite. Right. Doesn't Mm -hmm. this make sense? Like you've got a lot. You've got you balance each other. You complement each other in terms of your kind of potential leadership styles and skill set. And you've got one of you as immune and, you know, the other of you, the other as really a physical force. And, you know, why? Why? are we not all uh, figuring something out together? But that is not, Mm -hmm. I guess that doesn't make Mm -hmm. for exciting gameplay or I I think it make it can make for, this is what I'm telling my students who are making games, Utopia does not have to be a boring kind of mechanical and gaming proposition. It really Mm -hmm. doesn't. But But imaginatively, we want the conditions of dystopia to kind of motivate gaming action. And that's, that's, that's what we've dealt with. That's what we have in culture all around. It's not just games. 
games. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's obviously it's film. It's it's television. The dystopia is the norm. Um, it's it's hard lived realities, right? And then, like we have that as inspiration, and so we can't imagine um, a utopian proposition that would would play out in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. around community building around you know i mean the the, the we, we talk a lot about cozy games in this context uh right now and so many of the mechanics the actions of cozy games of fishing and crafting and <laughs> resource mm-hmm. management right these are things that you might bring to the table in an abby and ellie uh kind of union in the in the last of us two or just even in the last of us one right like with marlene and joel and ellie you right. know uh why why aren't we figuring something out out here, um, even if we want to kind of talk for a second about harvesting the brain for the vaccine, we let's you know. And it, there were several times where Marlene's character, both in the game and in the TV series, says, "Wait, wait, wait, wait. Let's let's let, you know. There's got to be something else here. Don't don't shoot me." And Joel's like, "No, you'll just come for her, you know, and shoots her." So I want right. to see that play out too, as a as a as you as the utopian invitation, much more than like what we get in a critical dystopia, which is usually thought of as these uh, dystopias that maintain some element, some impulse of hope in them. So embedding rather than embedding the utopian impulse in the dystopia, I would love to sort of what does it look like to flip that on its head. Does it mean prioritizing um, sort of female agency in a really true and, and dedicated way? What does that look like for us? Does it mean the racial others, mm-hmm. you know, the black people survive to live another day and to actually lead the resistance that they're so often coded for? Right. Yeah, I would like to see those those things, too, in games very much. I guess my hottest take about The Last of Us game <laughs> is that it exists precisely to make those utopian uh, possibilities unthinkable. Mm -hmm. So what would uh, actual care look like? What would actual robust, non-selfish, non-violent love for another person, for kin and other kinds of kin, not blood relations. What would that actually look like? It would mean developing protective communities. It would mean <laughs> developing a, a caring world so that the responsibility does not seem to fall on one man in his gun, one man <laughs> and his capacity to crash the world for this one person. And yet that is exactly the love story that The Last of Us makes compelling. It turns the position of this single man, this bitter, selfish, uh, desperate man into something universal, something that any father would do under any circumstances, because that is allegedly what love is. Cameron, you started out by asking something about, um, you know, the parallels that I tried to draw between Mm -hmm. the neoliberal present or the late neoliberal present and the game. And that's really where I see, unfortunately, uh, a really strong symmetry. The kind of love that the game makes compelling is a broken deformed type of love that feels compelling when when many people have zero expectations about community support, when many people don't expect anything from their employers, when they don't expect anything from government. 
And they think that the only sort of salvation that you can have in life can be found in private family relationships. And even smaller than that, in just one other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, playing the game, I was I was stunned by how often you were excavating the ruins of some attempt to build some other type of world. Right? Um, I'm thinking in particular of Ish's like sewer utopia. Um, that uh, you know, you kind of if you are diligent enough to to read every letter, you can kind of trace its destruction and um, the the fleeing of it. Um, even Jackson, right in the game, you arrive just as they're turning on the hydroelectric dam, after which they are immediately attacked by outsiders. So um, even that seems like much less like uh, a kind of utopian commune than it does in the TV show. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that that I was amazed by, um, which I, I hadn't expected. Um, with the impoverishment of the the kind of enemy mooks uh, speech, they say about three things in the game, and they are all these intense expressions of love for each other, right? Lots of people have commented on this, right? But the only thing they say when you shoot one of them, another one of them will say, I'm going to kill you for that, right? Or um, you're dead asshole, right? Like they, these enemies that are kind of coming at you as waves all love each other and they're enraged. The only thing they say is they're enraged their enragement when you've hurt one of their own, um, which is a fascinating thing when you're Joel who, who loves no one. Right. And then uh, loves Ellie in this toxic way we've talked about Um, those kinds of expressions are are, are almost exclusively negative through the game. And the, the implication, I think Jesse, you're exactly right. Is that um, at best you'll be able to claw onto one or two other people, right. And love them as a nuclear family substitute. Yeah. Uh, One thing I want to, Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So I just wanted to throw out there that I, I think it would be interesting at some point to, to come back around to what it means that Joel is played by a Latino in, in the TV show. Like what? Yeah, because it actually doesn't seem to make any difference. Not at all. <laughs> I was, not at all. It doesn't make a difference. Which is strange. right? Like, yeah. Like like you say, uh, Treya, Andrea, in, in your chapter about Henry and Sam. They don't seem to be aware that they are black characters. And similarly, or maybe even more intensely in the TV show, none of these people seem to know about racialization. Mm -hmm. And Pedro Pascal's being a Latino and Joel's transformation from an ordinary white guy to someone who who would be clearly racialized as a Mexican-American in Texas. Mm -hmm. that, That has no significance there's this great silence about racialization in the tv show even as more of those formerly white characters in the game become people of color so there's, <laughs> right. a, clear, there's a clear attempt at diversity in the tv show at at the same time that that its meanings are totally evacuated yeah mm-hmm. yeah and that cast those casting decisions i mean this is what we refer to in film studies as you know empty or plastic representation you know where you recast the casting decisions okay this is going to be a person of color played by a person of color now and an actor of color uh but the context in the, the narrative context doesn't change and so there's no other kinds of cues um uh so that that's part of the reason why it doesn't seem to make a difference um and i think 
that the other reasons are, uh, you know, in terms of Pedro Pascal's kind of performance, like in the U.S., yes, he he would probably be read. He would be read as a Latino, like in in Texas. Um, but he also has some, you know, he can he can be kind of passing kind of, you know, in terms of the optics of race. So he's sort of, you know, e- e- even though we know who he is as an actor and and we would kind of think of him um, as a as a as a Latino or Latinx uh, per- performer or actor, um, there is that delicate that delicate issue of of passing and sort of the visual cues of race um, that that it, it, it at least will allow some viewers to just not acknowledge that and just be, mm-hmm. even though the fans were really upset it seemed about some of the casting decisions like Sarah his daughter um, you know be, maybe being biracial I'm not sure um, you know wh- what the racial makeup the actress had but she definitely was not the visually the Sarah of the game um, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned Maria uh, uh, being a black woman and in Jackson and that she was not that in in the game uh, but these decisions are devoid of any kind of rich cultural consideration um, so they they come off as a sort of empty representation mm-hmm. and they don't really affect our in, in significant ways our reception or, or spectatorship along the the lines of race uh, so it does feel superficial now I always say this as my out in this case is that reception spectatorship that's all complex right so mm-hmm. even when you have plastic or empty representation does that mean that does is that completely insignificant right in the mm-hmm. in terms of me being I mean this is not a great analogy but a young kid kind of watching like the, the casting of, of of Harry and Sam they were both black uh you know black in the game and they're black here but now Sam is also hearing impaired he's also deaf mm-hmm. and so then you have that element of representation you know which can resonate in all these complex ways socially and culturally of now seeing this young um deaf character in a, in, a, in a series a popular series that has resonance culturally and socially so it is working in complex ways um but i what i what i what the issue of casting raises for me and recasting and some of these story tweaks that we've talked about that are that are different in a tv series it comes down to the question of adaptation and what we will change and what we won't change what will give some texture and context and delicacy to in terms of storytelling or positioning and what we won't right so henry and sam for example do they actually have to have the same fate that they had in the tv series as they did in the game um do they don't have to travel with joel and ellie uh but they already have a different background and you know storyline and and the characters are different themselves why are they why are they not why are those same that effort to recast characters not um is not applicable in terms of the story adaptation and and departing from the source material. So that's what it always raises for me, this issue of casting and recasting and this question of race and why doesn't Joel, why isn't it significant that Pedro Pascal is playing this, this cat is playing Joel. Uh, You know, maybe we can't talk about aggrieved white masculinity in the same way, um, but there is a sort of aggrieved toxic masculinity that still drives the story, you know, regardless of race. Mm -hmm. The the woman, um, that they uh, they they hinge the flashback on in, in the third episode, um, in the moment where we realize that Fedra has actually simply executed the people that was ostensibly taken to the quarantine zone, or at least some huge number of them. Um, the woman whose dress we we that flashback hinges on is is a woman of color, and that really struck me in part in context of uh, the the retention of two thousand three as the timeline. Right, um, it would have been such a natural thing to have the. The, the virus happened now and then we jumped 20 years ahead. But instead, mm-hmm. we retain this kind of odd moment of 
Bush, right? And the war on terror and the war on Iraq and Bill as this resistant figure who's very likable, right? Uh, especially played by um, Nick Offerman, right? Is a is a right-wing crank, right? Who thinks the governments are Nazis from a right-wing perspective um, and is a 9-11 truther and all these other kinds of things. Uh, and it's, it's it, the politics of that are very interesting. Like what it's, it's fascinating that they decided to retain 2003 as the hinge point as opposed to some other kind of moment and what that does for us to kind of uh, read this text. There's one there's one conspicuous moment mm-hmm. where this silence about racialization breaks. It's at the beginning when Ellie first meets. Um, oh, Marlene. And, and yes. she says, do I look like your mother? Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, In that, that moment. In that moment, we're actually hailed. The viewers are hailed as people who understand the old eyeball test of yes. racialization. Right. And and Ellie does, too. They share it. But it's conspicuous because nothing as far as I can see, nothing like that happens again where the viewer is hailed as somebody who knows what race is and the characters themselves understand that they live in a racialized world. And I think that's because at an ideological level, what the, both the TV show and the game want to do is tell a universal story. And that is one of the dominant uses of the so-called end of the world to set up a situation in which we pretend that we are seeing the truths of our nature laid bare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was so fascinating to me too about the casting choices there is that uh, because of this kind of exactly what you're saying, this kind of uh, maneuvering of Joel into the position of the universal, right? And then we have to inhabit the space in the game and in the the show, right? We're asked to to empathize with the space of universality. But in the game, which is uh, this kind of universal whiteness, right, this capaciousness for whiteness to do whatever it wants in any given moment, um, an imperial whiteness, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, specifically, uh, you know, in the, in the show, you have to adapt that then. But then the casting of Gabriel Luna as Tommy yeah. pulls a lot of kind of uh, racializing weight, you know, uh, at the beginning when they're in the first episode, when they're kind of talking about construction and all of this kind of stuff, he he is asked you know within 15 lines or something like that to ground joel in a racialized universe very quickly it's not you know it's not the eyeball test as you as you just put it right but there's this kind of social contextual thing going on uh mm-hmm. that is immediately dismissed right it's almost as if uh you know to to be uh uh you know a latino in texas uh, in 2003, you know, we, we get a social context immediately just so that we can disavow it and get, as you just said, Jesse, to this kind of false universal um, mm-hmm. that then makes the whole rest of the thing go. There are also some moments in Riley and um, Ellie's flashback there, you know, there's their their date in the mall where I think the racial logics crack a little. Um, mm-hmm. it, but it's mostly in reading Riley as a young woman of color, as a black woman in that space, because she <laughs> mentions that, you know, she runs away from uh, from Fedra's camp, from from their training program for youth, because uh, well, I mean, it sounds like she 
and Ellie were 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 kind of on the outs and are like troublemakers and you know rule breakers anyway. Uh, but you know she's about to age out in, of the program and will become a soldier, and she's assigned to the sewers, right? That there's some her her is the sort of like bad apple or the bad seed or the bad influence on Ellie. Um, you know that's all a sort of racialized kind of dynamic, being that they're an interracial couple, and then the 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 policing and the sort of punishment, you know, of, of Riley also seems really exacting compared to Ellie who gets into a fight and kind of gets a tap on the wrist. Like, are you going to be good now or what, you know, kid? Mm -hmm. Whereas Riley is like, I'm going to be shoveling shit. You know, if I stay with Vedra, like that's my, that's my post that I have. And it's just not a future for me. So, um, you know, hence she decides to join the fireflies, but is unable to make it because she's, she's, she's killed. She's bitten by the infected. And so I think that that, that relationship had, you know, it's not, it's not in the script necessarily, but those inferences that those conclusions and then that context of the school and, you know, it evokes the prison to school pipeline, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then the uneven consequences across racial lines that these two characters will uh, experience. Mm. Tra- Trandria, I just thought of another moment for the show that that's interesting for the things you're talking about um, in this kind of, uh, you know, the, the game and the show both have this reverse frontier narrative, right? Where we move from the East to the West in this like dream of refounding America, except you can't. Um, and the TV show uh, adds uh, two native characters, right? Uh, who help mm. Joel and Ellie and tell them not to cross the river, right? Because yes, monsters yes, live yes. there. But then when we, yes. you know, the show can't remember that when you actually cross the river, that's Tommy's utopian community that is bedeviling right. its neighbors, right? Oh, that's um, great, so yeah. Why <laughs> haven't they let in that couple? That seems so nice, right? Um, no, and they don't want any it's, part it's, of it. They're like, don't yeah. They are happy and content yeah. and, and well exactly. taken care of. And they're not at all phased by Joel and Ellie's, pre- the, you know, it's a humorous kind of interaction um, yeah. where, you know, they're they're departing all this kind of folk logic, but also, you know, being foreboding and like there's just death over there. So it's great that yeah. you pointed out that the <laughs> utopia is like they're experiencing as a death camp. There's nothing good over there across <laughs> the river. It's just death. You know, this is colonizers over yeah. there. So uh, that that is great. Yeah, that that is another positioning well we are uh getting close to the the time i had allocated here uh it's been very good uh why don't we run around the table real quick uh, the virtual table as it were and uh if you have a plug for a thing you want to talk about a thing that you've had come out recently or a thing you're working on that's about to come out or where people can find your work going forward i kind of the purpose of 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 these roundtables i think is to get people uh, knowledgeable and to hear something uh, and some stuff from scholars who are like doing things in the world who are not me and michael um and so uh yeah you want to you want to start with jerry jerry you want to give us a pitch on what you're working on what you had come out things like that oh sure um i i guess i'll plug uh Uneven Futures, Strategies for Community Survival uh, from Speculative Fiction, which is a kind of anthology of uh, kind of think piece style micro essays, mini essays. Uh, Cameron, you wrote for it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, That came out this year. Uh, People seem to like it. It just takes up a bunch of different kinds of stories of this sort and uh, tries to think about what we might learn from them. That isn't a lesson about, you know, you better get good at murdering everybody else. But instead, you know, what can we build? Yeah. Yeah. Jesse? I'm not working on anything right now because I'm actually uh, becoming a high school English teacher. So I'm, I'm leaving uh, academia. I (laughs) will plug, I will plug, you know, the book in which I try to work out some of the stuff that I 
sort of haphazardly threw together here, which is Rules of the Father and the Last of Us, Masculinity Among the Ruins of Neoliberalism. And that is, I see as a kind of extension of uh, another book that I published called Un-American Dreams, Apocalyptic Science Fiction uh, and Bad Hope in the American Century, which came out uh, with Liverpool University Press. So if you're interested in in some of these ideas, you can check those out. Cool. Yeah. And Trianger, what do you got going on? Well, um, as of May 1st, and hopefully it'll be May 1st, uh, I have a new project, a digital archive launching. It's a database, really, called the Black Games Archive uh, that I'm doing with Samantha Blackman. And it was initially created to help answer the question of what is a black game? Is there Are there black games? And it actually mm. became much broader than that and uh, much more complex, as you might imagine. And uh, so now it's, it's this database of games and scholarship and critical like video essay, video walkthrough essays. And it's supposed to launch um, May 1st. So we, you can look for it on Twitter, the black games archive and uh, you know, find the, the website that way. I say, I, I am fairly confident it will, it will launch May 1st or really close to that. Uh, we're, we're trying to work overtime to get this uh, on online and it's just a research tool. You know, I found that part of the problem was that if you're looking for games, even and trying to figure out like where are games that are created by black developers, whatever your criteria is. And that that's actually, we developed a, a complex taxonomy of like different search features, which may or not all, they may not all work when it launches, but, but you'll see the taxonomy of like, are you looking for devs? Are you looking for characterizations? Um, are you looking for the politics of the image, et cetera? So it's supposed to be this kind of thoughtful space to sort of navigate where blackness and black culture um, black identity intersect the medium, I think, which is a kind of richer way than the question of, are there black games? I think that's an, an interesting question, but mm-hmm. um, what is a black game is is not really at the heart of it anymore. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's the Black Games Archive, and then there's a new project, uh, which will take a while to come out, but it's called Anti-Racist Futures. Uh, and Cameron's, you have a, a chapter in this, in this book, um, editing it with Soraya Murray uh, at UC Santa Cruz, and it's all on race and sp- the speculative imagination in games. So that's a a ways out before it comes out, but that's in the works. And, um, and I'm also finishing a book on the Sims, which is due at the end of the year. So I've been <laughs> writing about the Sims for quite a while. Uh, and I'm writing about, uh, the Sims a whole entire franchise. Uh, so it's a little bit daunting, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of us working on these big franchise books. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, it's the way I want it. I'm teaching a class, a games franchise class in the fall. Um, and I, it's cool. on The Sims, but every year I want to alternate different, fran- cycle through different franchises. So more people should uh, write these books on franchises to help me teach these classes, which I think there will be a lot of interest in studying, you know, a single uh, idea as it develops over the course of a franchise. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on the I mean, you, uh, the Sims much longer, but right. I'm working on this Assassin's Creed franchise. Many, more, many more titles in Assassin's Creed, though, right? Like, uh, uh, more titles, but less time to be responsible for, true, um, true, you know, true. by about 10 years or something. But but uh, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I similarly make an impassioned plea in that book <laughs> that thinking about franchises is the way to go. Um, I, I have and, a book you know. series at Minnesota Press that we're putting together. <laughs> that's all about franchise culture. So I, I, hey. we should all talk more about this. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Jerry wants oh. to hear your pitches. Yeah, I, yeah. absolutely. I want to hear pitches. Yeah. Uh, 
I will, I will, I will. That sounds like an awesome series on franchises. And I will, I'll shout out University of Chicago's replay series, which is not mm-hmm. on franchises. It's usually a, a, a one game. So one game title with short books. Uh, I happen to do a franchise for that series, but mostly it's on one game. And then the last plug will be for Power Play, which is Duke University series that I edit with Jen Makowski, uh, which is on more traditional kind of monographs and game studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, if you're listening to this and you have the inkling to write any kind of book about <laughs> games, studies, you're covered. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, feel free to, to hit them up. Uh, all the books that we mentioned are not all the books, but the, the various books that have been mentioned by the participants here. Those will be on the uh, Game Study Study Buddies um uh, bookshop page uh, that's down in the description below wherever you're hearing this so if you're curious about what those were and you want to le- learn more about them and you want to buy them from a place that gives me a kickback personally you can go down there and do that <laughs> right now um, and uh, I think that's it for the thing if you enjoyed this episode please let us fi- leave us a five star review wherever you listen to your podcast that helps us out and uh, helps the show go other places you should also tell someone else about the show remember we don't spend any money on advertising and so every time you tell someone about game study study buddies who doesn't listen to the show it actually does the work of helping spread it around hopefully this was really helpful for you and if you have some feedback on the round table this is the first one we've done uh please let us know uh you can tweet at us or you can get at us on discord uh let me know what you like what you didn't like the plan is to run a couple of these a year to kind of break up the game study study buddies format a little bit uh michael and i are also tired of reading a book a month uh, because we've been doing it for 60 months straight (laughs) um and so we're you know we're thinking of ways of breaking up the format a little bit um and i believe michael's doing the next one so if you have suggestions for what michael lutch should do as a roundtable uh you should let us know thanks so much for listening to the show uh if you want to support it monetarily you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch that's down in the description below for three dollars a month you can get our notes about the show there are of course no notes for this one but i promise you for the next one there will be and remember that we are starting the summer of agency uh starting i believe in may you can go to twitter.com slash range touch in order to see the list of books that we're doing there but it's a bunch of books about agency um in game studies uh which is such a big topic and it comes up occasionally uh well now we're gonna do a big run of books about it so in case you're curious you can learn more about it thanks so much to all of you for being on the show and we'll be back in a month with an episode on a book michael and i have not decided what it is